2: Welcome into the Rotowire NFL podcast brought to you by our friends over at WinBet. I'm your host, John McCackney, joined as always by Mario Puig. We got a lot to get to today. We're going to dive into some latest news and rumors from around the league, the latest in the Julio Jones saga, of course, and then keeping it In the saga realm, uh, also going to be talking a little bit of Aaron Rodgers and Packers before getting into some of Mario's most recent best ball drafts over on Underdog, trying to pick his brain about uh, early strategy at at this stage, players he's targeting at their current ADPs, players he's fading. Then we'll use that as a bit of a jumping off point to talk about some early receiver strategy. But uh, first off, Mario, how are you doing on this fine Thursday heading into Memorial Day?
3: Uh, it's fine. It got really cold for some reason overnight, and I never check the weather before I take my dog outside in the morning. So I went out there a bit underdressed, uh, <laughs> been awake for a long time as a result of that. And uh, yeah, I'm ready to um, talk about, uh, talk defensively about my Trevor Lawrence shares in best ball leagues as everyone's talking about Taysom Tebow or whatever. Oh gosh, right. Yeah, that so that that whole uh thing. But but yes, can confirm it I'm did fine. get really I'm cold not, here. I'm not freaking out. I'm not I'm not <laughs> having any sort of issues psychologically with it. I'm doing good. No, of course not. Uh ne- never. Never. But um
2: before we get there, let's start off elsewhere in the AFC South where AJ Brown is putting uh putting on the the media blitz via his Instagram really tr- Pushing hard, recruiting hard uh, to see if you know Julio Jones may be someone that that uh, the Titans can acquire from the from the Falcons. Obviously, there was the uh, drama earlier this week with the Shannon Sharp phone call and, and all that on on that Fox Sports show. Um, but regardless. Um, Do you think that that a Julio Jones is definitely going to be traded? And what have you made of AJ Brown's pitch in particular, while also denying that Julio would get number 11 if he did link up with the Titans?
3: Yeah, I don't know what to make of that. I mean, AJ Brown may or may not have some influence with with Vrabel, who I assume does most of the personnel decisions. For the Titans, I don't know how uh, much, I'm guessing not that much, but maybe they were just in on it anyway. Maybe this is like a little bit extra nudge that, that might change their calculation a little bit. Um, but either way, I guess there's good reason at this point to consider the Titans, one of the favorites to get him. which I'm skeptical it would help anything of theirs, but I I guess two teams who are kind of bad at making personnel come up with scenarios like that, where it's not good for either side. And, uh, doesn't mean they won't do it just because it doesn't really make that much sense necessarily. I mean, the Falcons especially, I mean, you know, they look out into trading Muhammad Sanu for a second rounder and then they trade that for Hayden Hurst, who they almost immediately decide they don't actually want. Um, Obviously, Tennessee just cutting a Dory Jackson and then he immediately signs a $13 million annually contract. So it's like, ooh, could we have gotten a fourth for him? Yeah, probably. Best not to think about that. Um, So yeah, these guys (laughs) might come up with something ridiculous, but I'd like to see, I guess, Julio in someplace more like, Kansas City, where uh, if he's if he wants to leave Atlanta to win, I'd rather not see him go to a team that clearly will not. Right. So,
2: so the Titans, uh, yeah, that they they don't quite make. make Or at least I'm low on
3: them. Yeah.
2: No, that's, that's fair. I think if you were to, to kind of re-rack all the teams that, that made the postseason a year ago um, and, and rank their chances of making it back uh, this year, I think the Titans would be relatively low on that list. So I'm with you there. Uh, I hadn't even really considered the Chiefs as a potential landing spot, but that would just be, you know, th- then we're like really reaching super team status when it, when it comes to the Chiefs. Uh, that would be absurd. I've, I've considered that... Uh, that the chargers I think would be a really interesting landing spot for Julio Jones that would, you know, boost his fancy value and, and, you know, kind of raise, raise the tide for everybody. And, you know, uh, Justin Herbert included.
3: Yeah, maybe, I guess I don't have any firm thought on whether it would be an upgrade or a downgrade or a lateral move if he were to go there, but it would certainly help Justin Herbert re- avoid, you know, any regression that we might fear from his rookie year numbers. Right. Exactly. So uh, yeah, the tons of, uh, you know, teams apparently
2: are interested in Julio, and what we'll see how this continues uh, to shake out. But let's move on over to Green Bay. Uh, what's the latest? What What have you kind of digested from everything that's coming out uh, this week out of Lambeau? You know, be it uh, Aaron Rodgers' appearance on Kenny Mayne's last Sports Center, or you know anything else that that's on your mind when it comes to Rodgers and the and the state of the Packers?
3: Well, I guess. Pretty much Rodgers and all the receivers. I don't know what's going on with the tight ends or any other particular group of players on the team, but it was all of Devontae Adams, Lazard, uh, Valdis Scantling, Equinemius, and Devin Funches all apparently weren't at the the OTAs or whatever. And particularly a guy like Funches, there's got to be a, I feel like anyway, sort of like a political significance behind that because. He's he's not in a position to feel like his roster spot is safe. Like he's not in a no. position to to feel like I don't even need OTAs. They they can't get rid of me. He already took a pay cut, you know. So they can get rid of him, and uh, it's almost as if he uh, was placing a bet that I don't know Rogers is gonna get what he wants and get that GM fired. I don't know because like what what happens if they trade Rodgers? Then his then his you know show of allegiance to Rogers doesn't get him it certainly doesn't get him anything with the new. Uh, r- remaining team they'll cut him that much faster if they trade Rodgers so he apparently i don't I don't know maybe it was it for another reason maybe it was all you know incidental separate reasons totally totally aside from Rodgers, this whole deal but it kind of looked like a show of solidarity with him which uh it's not what you want to see if you're the GM like it's it's going into a very weird territory that I I can't think of uh in, in the NFL you know just basically dictating the the, the front office, which um, I, I think it's fine. I, I think Rogers is basically cool for it because uh, he's just, he's just playing with the actual leverage that he has. And the GM did bet on Rogers falling off the last two years and then, you know, denied it the whole time saying like, Oh no, we're just, we just, we just thought it'd be a good idea to trade up for love. We have full, we're, we're fully committed to Rogers. That's why we're, we're not using this first round pick to help him. And we're not going to use any of the other ones. Probably. Uh, it's because <laughs> we're, we're totally committed to Rogers. And so it's, I don't know. I get it in his position being like, well, if you want to just lie like that, then I, I can do that too. And I can do the same thing as you, where I, I say, I'm not being, you know, hostile or, or like speculating against your interests or whatever, and then just do it anyway. Cause like, that's all the Packers are doing. And it's, uh, I mean, the GM. Uh, you know just should have been more straightforward about it shouldn't have done it etc so uh, we'll see uh, I have no idea where any of I have no inside knowledge of it obviously and I I don't have any idea what everybody's thinking in it but I don't really see how the Packers have any leverage here other than to trade Rodgers for whatever it is that they might get on the market even if it's not as much as what they want but to this point they've used the condition of not getting what they want as a reason to not trade him and like that's that's kind of as if they think they have leverage that they just don't. It's like you you can hold out and hope for a better market, but not if the player just leaves. Like if he just retires, it's like you don't actually have any sort of recourse here. Like you're you're acting as if you do. So um, it's it's pretty explosive looking situation to me. I guess if uh, I, I guess you see it as like a three three possibility outcome of like either the GM gets fired and Rogers comes back, or the Broncos or somebody, I guess I gotta say the Broncos trade for Rodgers for whatever the Packers yeah. are willing to accept or the Packers play hardball too long and Rodgers just retires.
2: <sighs> yeah. So that's, uh, those are three pretty interesting outcomes. And, and obviously, you know, that there's going to be some uncomfortable stuff either, either way it goes. And I, I kind of want to just explore, that pos- that first possibility that you mentioned, and maybe just kind of power rank the likelihood in your mind of of those three things happening. Starting off uh, with the Packers potentially parting ways with Gudenkus to to kind of curry the favor of, of Aaron Rodgers. Do you think that's likely? I mean, I'm I'm trying to rack my brain at, for uh, r- regime changes where they wait until or a team will wait until after the draft and then fire their GM. I think the Texans are the only ones that I can think of in recent memory that, that did that. And uh, I don't know if you want to be in the same boat as the Texans, as far as your uh, decision-making is concerned.
3: Yeah. And I guess, you know, it it is possible that Rogers starts with the demand of fire, the GM, and maybe is willing to, to negotiate to a point less than that of, okay, you don't fire him, but we have some sort of like legally binding language that he does have to consult with me or something, or, or, you know, I'll, I'll back off my demand to fire the GM if you trade for Julio and give me uh, $15 million or something. I don't know. So whatever you whatever might feel like he can extract from them. But it, it doesn't really feel possible to me that they'll fire the GM because, you know, the, po- the whole point of owning and running an NFL team. And I know the Packers don't have a conventional owner, but they do have a power structure. And everybody in that power structure has the same incentives to preserve and accumulate and cons- consolidate their power uh, regardless of you know the technical status of how it's owned, and in your position of a GM or whatever management position, it's like the whole point of you being there is to exert that power. It's like you're n- you're not actually interested in uh, having a co-op here and sharing the spoils equally with everybody on a democratic basis. Like you're here to preserve your authority and anything that threatens it. Uh, you know, conceding. A, a diminishing of your authority defeats the whole point. He might as well just resign instead or just be like, I yeah, I don't want to do this job anymore. So uh, it would have to be somebody above the GM. And I don't know enough about the background politics of the Packers to know whether that's possible. But the GM is not going to fire himself. And anybody who has an investment in that GM's power structure is going to oppose this. So it's, it's going to have to come from the outside. I don't, I don't know if there is such a thing. OK, all right. So that's that's
2: a tricky little detail there when it when it comes specifically uh, to the Packers and, and the way that 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 organization is run. So uh, do you feel like the trade then is
3: a more likely scenario? Again, it's like it's this thing. Um, the Watson deal with with Houston was shaping up this way. It looked like Carson Wentz was going to shape up this way. But these teams, they they have this ability to to kind of have what I think is like this hypocritical position of like, I don't know how to explain it exactly but they're like we we don't need to recognize like your m- value as a market asset and like we don't need to um at the same I don't know how to explain it but it's something like where they basically reach a point that kind of like banks do when they need a bailout where like they, they overextend their leverage. They get put in a, they get caught in a position. And in this case, it's with the salary cap and the cap penalties. And so they say, well, we don't want to trade this guy. No one's giving us a good enough deal for where it makes sense for us. And they have to accept like nothing that you can get at this point will so-called make sense for you. You screwed up and you don't have any leverage at this point. You just have to accept what you can get. And they say, well, we're just going to hold on to him anyway because we're not getting a good enough offer. And it's like you you did and you just don't know it yet. And, like, depending on how long the Packers play this out and how long a team, like, whatever, the Broncos or whoever else might be interested, is willing to play it out, that's how long it's going to go because neither side will flinch until then. But the, what the Packers risk is the the Broncos saying, fine, whatever, we're just going to go into this year. We're, we've got Bridgewater and Lock, and we're, we're moving ahead and, and the store's closed and the Packers will be like, mm-hmm. wait, open back up. We didn't mean that. And it's going to just be too late. So they have to consider you know, where that point in time is and, and consider whether it's worth, you know, pressing their luck up to that point. Um, but yeah, in the meantime, like giving up authority of, of personnel and like front office decisions. I, I don't, I don't really think that's possible. I think a trade or a retirement is more likely if, if Rogers means that that's the one thing that he'll accept, because if he, if there is, if there's a point he can negotiate from, then maybe he'll do it, but uh, they have to entertain him somehow. And so far it seems like they, they don't really have any intention of it. Okay, so again, this is a, a thorny issue,
2: and, and uh, again, you know, we we don't know exactly which direction, but you know, like, like you laid out, there are three likely likely scenarios uh, as to how uh, this all is going to unfold. Uh, let's move on over. Let's talk about some of the recent best ball drafts uh, that you've done over on uh, Underdog. So, starting things out, you know, kind of give us a background on how the the best ball process over there works maybe a little bit differently than than some of the other like best ball sites like bb10s or, or over on DraftKings, um that sort of thing and what your approach has been uh through those uh, couple of drafts
3: so i was only doing my first two drafts on underdog i didn't know much about their their whole deal other than that you know people have been talking about them for a while and uh, i guess it's it's a lot like draft before that site closed it's kind of um an appy looking interface. And I assume that they prefer that people use the app like Draft uh, would always say. I always use computer like browser cause I, I just, I'm too old to do all these apps that everyone does. Also I have a $20 Walmart phone that can't download apps. So I'm compelled to use the site. Um, it, it works better <laughs> than Draft did though. So it's, it's less glitchy than before. Like I did two drafts, uh, fast drafts with no problems uh, no, no, like sticking buttons or, you know, things getting scrambled or weird, uh, connection issues. So it went smoothly. And, uh, the only thing that I, you know, at this point, even know, for, like I, I haven't really investigated the, all the possibilities of the site, they have a bunch of formats that are different than what you see on some other sites. Like they have that sophomore and rookie only format. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So, we, that, so yep. like, little curious twists like that are, are there. And um, I, I might look at those eventually, but initially I went in just to see like the, the big best ball tournament that they have. And um, yeah, it was, it's a pretty cool looking contest, I guess, like big, big tournament uh, contests for, for best ball is always interesting. It, it's, it's a, it's an intriguing concept. And, and there's, there's a big dollar figure behind this one. It's supposed to be like a million or whatever for the top prize. So with that kind of stakes, that, that definitely makes it a little more exciting than your. are uh, $10 50-50 contest, although those those contests, of course, have their place too, and you know, giving you some stability and some uh, some some higher odds of return to offset where you take on bigger risks with tournaments like these. And it, it's it's a half-point PPR rather than full point PPR like they have on the best ball of tens. I think otherwise the only difference really is that there's no defenses. And or for that tournament anyway, there wasn't any. Uh, so I think it was just quarterback, running back, running back, three receiver, tight end, one flex. And I gotta say, at least in a tournament draft format, the people drafting are I think quite a bit sharper than they tend to be in the average Best Ball Ten league. Which makes sense. There's there's more money on the line. It's higher stakes. So um, one one thing that occurred to me doing these drafts on, on Best Ball, these tournament drafts, is that uh, or sorry, on, on Underdog, these uh this tournament draft, they were they're they're really addictive because you go in with these certain plans or you develop these plans as the draft is going on and they always get ruined like you always think you're close to to pulling off some sort of stack or pairing or some other sort of strategic angle that you cook up as it as the draft goes along and every time somebody undercuts you so you get under the draft you get out of the draft and you're tilting and you're like i gotta go in again i almost had it i almost had it okay I mean, i'm gonna get it this time I'm sh- it's gonna work and uh so far it's like it's not working I, I don't i don't know if i'm gonna be able to figure out like a you know an adjusted strategy for it but it, it seems like all you can really do is kind of take a lot of shots at it and hope that something falls your exact way. And in addition to the hope that you're even being right in the first place about whatever your strategy is. So it's, it's pretty tough and like the stakes keep you invested and it keeps uh, sharper people flocking toward it, which makes you uh, uh, spend more compulsively on it. So it's definitely good. You definitely want to get sharper people going there so that you, you get, you know, people like us, tilting when when we're not getting the stacks that we got used to getting on, on places like best ball tens or whatever kind of like lower stake setting
2: yeah and i, I know what you mean with like the the fast draft element of it where you finish up a draft and it's only been like 20 minutes for the entire thing to to finish out and you're like well you know I, usually my drafts take least like it a regular one takes at least an hour, so I mean, hmm, I got time. Uh, so yeah, yeah. It, definitely, definitely see like the the whole dive back in element to it, and and I'll have to explore it a little bit further. I've I won't, I've only done like like we talked about a little bit earlier in the off season the uh, rookies and uh, second year player draft, and that was before the actual NFL draft happened. So uh, would be interested to see how that market has changed uh, now that we know the landing spots of those rookies that that sort of thing. Um, but yeah. Uh, good stuff and so with that in mind you know how did you go in with with some roster builds in mind and, and which ones in particular you know had you cooked up that that didn't quite uh, get across the finish line as far as you know execution goes
3: yeah so i like both of my teams enough it's just kind of um there were a, there were a few more snipes than I was ever used to in, in other sites. So uh, de- definitely left more of a sting than usual. But when I look back on it, it's like, I, th- I think the teams are pretty solid. And I'm guessing as much as I felt like I was getting sniped a lot, I imagine everybody else in the league feels like that too. Like I think everybody, I doubt there's, generally anyway, I doubt there's many people from any of these tournament drafts who leave thinking, I just got everything I wanted there. Like it's it's probably everybody's feeling a bit uh, stung pretty much every every round. But what I went for with the, my first draft, which was the twelfth spot, I had the twelfth uh, overall pick and took Eckler and Tyreek uh, to start off there. I wasn't—I I had no knowledge of like the ADP or just like the trends of uh, the, the positional market trends in this format, so i, I didn't really—I didn't have any uh, strategy other than like hopefully don't screw up too bad. So I tried to to, to tr- sort of like give a little security at both running back and receiver by going with Eckler. Uh, who loses a little bit in the half point PPR, but I don't think that much. And um, at that point, anyway, he was he was kind of the best running back option in my opinion. So I went with him. I, I love his skill set. I think he's going to get a lot of usage. You know, I went to the the RoadWire player page for him and clicked on the half point PPR scoring game log, and it was like, oh, that doesn't look so bad. I guess I'll go with that. And then Tyreek at receiver, you know, th- nothing's nothing's a lock there, but you get that kind of air yardage, that kind of target volume. Yards after the catchability in the Patrick Mahomes offense, like starting with that, I, I figured couldn't have been too bad. And then uh, I ended up getting Herbert later to sort of pair with Eckler, but I wasn't able to get uh, Keenan Allen. Uh, I wasn't, I didn't go for Mike Williams. I actually went for Tyron Johnson in the last round, who I, I still am being a truther about. Like Josh Palmer is not. I respect a good that. Prospect yeah. and, no. and uh yeah. So I went. I got a little bit of a stack there, but I think I went with. I think I tried to get like. I took like C.D. Lamb at the next, the third round, maybe. And I was hoping like, okay, maybe I'll get Cooper, uh, Amari Cooper at the fourth round pick. That's like three selections from now. And now the guy who had the two picks in between me uh, blew that up. And I was like, come on, man. Like, Cooper's not even that good. Why do you want him? Uh, so yeah, it was, it was <laughs> uh, stuff, like, stuff like that was happening. Um, but, and I took Jared Cook late, which I don't, I normally don't, don't do that. But if I'm doing a Herbert roster, it's like, I guess it's then or never. Sure. No, that that makes sense. Uh, going back to to um, your your
2: first couple of picks, obviously I, I like Austin Eckler a lot too. I took him in the in the Rotowire full PPR draft um, that, that we talked about last week. But um, you mentioned uh, him being like a safe option in it. I don't know if if everyone would agree with that necessarily. So if you would just kind of expound a little bit on, on you know like like you know why. Why Eckler, in your mind, is like worth that that twelve with, with like some some floor to him because I, I don't feel like he he gets perceived enough as being a safe player, especially you know maybe after the getting nicked up a bit last year.
3: Yeah, he has gotten nicked up a little bit, and he is a small running back. Like even though he's he's really well built, obviously, but by running back standards, being 5'9", 200, whatever he is, that's not very dense. It's like he's he's probably lighter than Clyde edwards hilaire who's two inches shorter than him. So he's not a very dense runner but what i think is uh, beyond any dispute is is that eckler is probably one of the five most dangerous running backs from scrimmage in the whole NFL and I, i'm not saying that he's as good or specifically as the five top five running backs that someone might have in mind for fantasy but those guys rank ahead of eckler only because they get bigger workloads and that's that's a meaningful limitation with eckler but also his price is accordingly lower than them so i don't uh, it doesn't actually trouble me that he can't be a 20 carry running back he's not priced like one so it's fine uh, if he was if i had to take him in the top 4 or top 5 then we're talking a little different cuz once you're in that price range you need to score touchdowns like alvin kamara does or else it's just not the math isn't going to work so uh but anyway back at like uh, 11 10 12 stuff like that i definitely think that with as long as herbert's on the field eckler will just kind of go along for some sort of ride just on that basis. And then on his own part, he's going to drive up the baseline because he's just one of the most dangerous players with the ball and without the ball. He's a, he's a great route runner. He can get open against corners running outside. He can do screen passes, whatever it is. And I think you have to consider him the favorite to lead that team with in yardage from scrimmage easily over Keenan Allen. And I, I just, if if that's the case, it doesn't really like, like I get the risk and you know, I guess at some point you'll have to limit your exposure. Like if I, if I did 10 of these drafts, I don't actually want 10 shares of Austin Eckler, even if I consider them at a good market rate overall, because then you're just taking on too much injury risk, like with any player, but sure. because pretty much all running backs can get hurt. I, I can't really, unless I get my count to a share percentage to a certain point, I can't really start caring about that yet. Um, but in, if you look at his game log from last year, Clearly, he is he is a workhorse player. Even if a lot of it is as a target.
1: This Rotowire podcast is brought to you by my favorite meal kit, Factor. I gave Factor a try, and I can tell you firsthand, eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every meal arrives fresh, not frozen, and they're chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. Every week, you'll have over thirty-five different options to choose from. And there's something for every diet, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. And there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and get after those wellness goals. One of my favorite things about Factor, it's the convenience. We're talking meals that are good to go in two minutes or less. You can fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant quality meals that are ready to heat and eat wherever you are. There's no prep, there's no mess, no cooking, no cleanup, none of that. It's perfect if you have a busy lifestyle and you can't dedicate an hour plus each day to preparing lunch or preparing dinner. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Factor also offers options for every meal. Pancakes, smoothies, you name it. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, dinner, whatever you need. Factor has it. Factor is also tailored to your schedule, so you can get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals each week. Plus, you could pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. We've done the math. We've run the numbers over here. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be both nutritious and delicious. Head over to factormeals.com slash rotowire50 and use the code rotowire50. That'll get you 50% off your order. That's code rotowire50 at factormeals.com slash rotowire50 to get 50% off today.
3: Targets because he was just getting tons of usage in that backfield after he got hurt and before he got hurt. So if if Herbert keeps that offense scoring a lot of points and Eckler is in the same role he's always been, his skill set and the circumstances just dictate that he's almost certain to produce, in my opinion. The only question is, like, is he top five or is he top, you know, 12 – or sorry, top 10 at running back. But I I don't think – injury risk aside, I don't think a third possibility really exists for me.
2: Okay. All right. That that was a good explainer then on Austin Eckler. Uh, Before we get on to the rest uh, of your team uh, here, we got a quick word from our sponsors for our live stream friends uh, that that'll be uh, that we're right back. We're here. Uh, That that'll just be for the podcast portion of all this, but Mario, let's take a look at uh, the rest of your roster construction um, with with some of these, some of these players. Uh, So I guess round out the rest of that uh, Justin Herbert uh, stacked team and then get into uh, your Trevor Lawrence exposure as well.
3: Uh, So, yeah, sorry, I'm going a little bit by memory, but I think, like I said, I had Ceedee lamb, uh, so, so that left me with Tyreek, CeeDee Lamb at receiver. I had Eckler at running back one. And I don't think I took another running back for a little bit. I remember I took like David Johnson in the 10th round, which I'm not excited about that at all. But it was just one of those things like, man, it's like, it's the 10th round. I guess if he doesn't get hurt, he could, I don't know. It's just He's just like a zero running back kind of candidate at that price. And I was kind of doing the halfway zero running back. Uh, taking Eckler and then not much else. But I took, um, I got Terry McLaurin. I think when I was hoping to get Amari Cooper in that fourth round. So that that one, uh, that one jerk took Amari Cooper after me. I took Terry McLaurin. I think I got Curtis Samuel in the ninth round. Uh, and in both of my drafts, I took A. Dillon, I think my second running back because he just seems underpriced on draft to me. Like that's the one area where I think they are not very sharp in their current ADP because the half point PPR bridges the gap a little bit between him and his normal competition just off the bat. Like obviously his strength is not pass catching. So for the players ranked ahead of him who pass catching is a strength, the format necessarily brings them a little closer in the first place. And then the second thing is a, like he's going to be better than Jamal Williams and probably with a bigger role and b Aaron Jones is not a durable running back. Like I think he's a great player, and I think he's definitely worth that contract that the Packers gave him, but he's almost like a, he's almost like a running back receiver hybrid, and for the functions that he is a pure running back, he still doesn't do the same stuff that A.J. Dillon will between the tackles. It's like the, all the fuss that people make about saying, Jamal Williams is an A-back and De- DeAndre Swift's a B-back. Aaron Jones has been the B-back all this time, and the A-back role is there for Dillon, who's better than Williams, and in the event of an Aaron Jones injury, they just become the, – the, the remaining guy just kind of takes on both at once, or, or maybe Kylan Hill will be the passing down guy. I don't know. But anyway, Aaron Jones gets hurt a lot, and I don't think – like the way people reach for Kareem Hunt in the fourth round in every best ball draft, because like, oh, well, if Nick Chubb gets hurt, Kareem Hunt's the running back one. Uh, A.J. Dillon should benefit from a similar sort of upside logic, and people aren't applying it for some reason in this format. Uh, so, yeah, I'm going to keep hammering that as long as his price stays in that eighth to ninth round range. Okay, that that's – Oh, sorry. That's I a good jo- – Oh, sorry. My bad. I, I, I was going tight end, uh, Johnny Smith in both drafts too. Sorry about that. He's, he's just really cheap, I think. And, and, uh, that's, that's why I went at the moment in both of those.
2: Got it. Got it. I see. And and the AJ Dillon one, he's been a tough one for me to figure out because, you know, in dynasty, we, we, we've both, you know, been big fans of his for a while, but, um, I've really struggled with with trying to figure out what his valuation is. So, I mean, over the last couple of years, like you said, Jones has gotten like all the production, but Williams has gotten a fair amount of snaps in that offense. So, um, you know, there is that role opening up where AJ Dillon is going to be on the field. I think probably a lot more than people are anticipating, even if Jones is still that number one guy. So um, as far as like secondary options at the running back position, it doesn't get a whole lot better than AJ Dillon's projection right now. And again, it's just a matter of like figuring out where that valuation is relative to some of the rest of the, of the running back pool. But you know, the upside case for him is pretty massive. Like you said.
3: Yeah. And people aren't appreciating the fact in the meantime that AJ Dillon is much better than Jamal Williams. I'm not saying he's as good or a little bit better. He's much better. He will have a, for that particular role in the offense, it will be a transforming nature to it going from, Williams to Dillon it's going to have a whole host of possibilities that it didn't before and especially it's going to get better returns on the ground AJ Dillon will do more with his carries than Jamal Williams ever did Absolutely.
2: So, uh, yeah, look forward to to seeing AJ Dillon get get unleashed in a more real serious way, as opposed to you know just him garbage time against the Titans uh, like Christmas weekend last year. Like let's let's see this consistently. Uh, let's get this rolling because when we talked about uh, when the Packers drafted AJ Dillon is like oh uh, the the perspective of of tackling a six foot two hundred forty pound guy with with you know four four speed at Lambeau Field in December, that's going to, that's not going to be very fun for defenses. So I'd lo- love to just start yeah. getting that going. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I think there's, there's, there's a market inefficiency in the mere fact that people think Williams can do things that Dylan can, and it's, it's just not true. So that, Nope.
2: Yep. That is, that is patently, uh, false. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to add on to, um, you, your, uh, best ball teams for, from underdog these, these first couple run throughs, uh, before we move on to some early receiver strategy?
3: Uh, not really. I guess uh, I'm still learning a lot about it. I guess we can use these misadventures of mine to hopefully get other people to do smarter things than me, or at least is what I've told them to, to get where they're trying to go. I've been tripped up a few times with, with all my planning, so uh, maybe you just kind of have to not have one. Maybe you just have to hope you do the you know the Jedi uh, sort of reactions and just have, have the have perfectly synchronized, like perfect insight and, and reflexes at the same time. And, and, you know, hopefully get that winning lotto ticket there.
2: Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's get on over to some early uh, receiver strategy. So the way that I've structured things so far in, in a lot of my uh, best ball drafts or in redrafts um, as well is I get running back a lot early. I, I almost, always try to leave the first two rounds with two running backs. And I haven't had a lot of times where I've gotten uh, a receiver in the, f- in the first two rounds. We talked about the, the PPR draft last week um, where, you know, I, I took Darren Waller with one of those selections in addition to Austin Eckler. And, you know, I'm admitting that that's not a foolproof strategy. I, I do feel like I'm more comfortable with attacking that the, the mid rounds and finding the values in the mid rounds, as far as the receivers go. But, um, And uh, I just am a little bit risk averse to some of those running backs that that go in a similar part of the draft. But even still, you know, I don't want to leave draft season with no Tyreek Hills, uh, no Devontae Adams, uh, no A.J. Browns, that that kind of thing. So I guess just walk us through, you know, the guys that you're targeting from those first two rounds and, and, you know, kind of making some cases for for taking them uh, as high as they're going.
3: Yeah, so I've only done best ball drafts this far and I, I can't claim to have very much thought out how I would maybe handle certain players differently and redraft season long. But for best ball, you know, a lot of a lot of my kind of a lot a lot of my reception of these players and their prices has to do with how they fit into the pairing or the stacking potential. So I, I go into the third and fourth round range like I did in that underdog draft. Not so much thinking, oh, I got to get CeeDee Lamb or I got to get or I'm psyched to get Amari Cooper here because I'm not really in both in either case. But if I can get both of them, then that gives a sort of like upside scenario with in the event of the Dallas passing game going off where it makes sense to target them there. So they're not there's that kind of middle category of guys where I find them acceptable under certain conditions, but I'm not specifically trying to just load up on shares. Uh, going into the season, the ones that I've so far identified as really good values to load up on, I guess. Uh, not, not, that I, not that I'm not that i totally certain about this. I mean, I'm not at all certain about it. Um, but I feel like DJ Moore has to get more slot snaps this year for the Panthers with Curtis Samuel gone. And I think in that event, he will have the best intersection so far in his career of role and kind of preparedness and tasks that suit his uh his nature as a player like he's been good as a downfield outside receiver for the panthers but i think he can be a better one when you increase uh t- the percent of to which his outcomes are informed by his run after the catch uh that should if you raise that i think you'll get better results out of him than leaving his outcomes subjected uh alternatively to air yardage and you know downfield passes landing on target because as much as I like Darnold, I'd rather just get the ball in DJ Moore's hands right away. And if he's playing in the yeah. slot, he's running more of those Curtis Samuel routes where he is getting the ball right away and some carries. Not that that matters, but it's like, it could, it could, it can be an opportunity that he just didn't have last year. And if he gets it, I think he'll, he'll absolutely thrive with it because I think it better suits his abilities. So I want to get more DJ more at, at least at the current price. Like if he starts pushing for the second round, I guess that's a little different, but so far it seems like people are almost a little cooler on him than they were last year. And I don't understand how that can be the case when you're upgrading a quarterback and subtracting Curtis Samuel, who uh, you know, he wasn't playing the same role as more. He wasn't th- fighting for, for the same targets or tests, but whoever replaces Curtis Samuel won't be as good as him. They won't be able to draw as much usage as Samuel. So it, it almost necessarily leaves slack and it could go to Robbie Anderson, but it seems like Robbie Anderson is of, of him and DJ Moore. Robbie Anderson seems the one who's more likely maxed out. So if, if there's a shifting slack and if someone can pick it up, I think it's gotta be DJ Moore. So I, I wouldn't be surprised at all. If he's kind of like a top 10 in PPR sort of receiver this year.
2: Yeah. I would love to see that. Um, yeah, big DJ Moore fan, and and yeah, I think that yeah, the arrow trends up with Sam Darnold being in Carolina as opposed to to the other way around. So uh, maybe ADP will catch up to that uh, soon enough. Uh, to me, it feels like Mario when you get past the first eight or so receivers, um, and you get in into the early third round, uh, the the next two guys that come up are generally Terry McLaurin and Allen Robinson as as the next one's up and you know, in a, in a lot of cases that that could mean, uh, that McLaurin or Robinson are your first receivers on, on your given roster. Um, how comfortable would you be with, with that type of setup where, where you've gone elsewhere with your first two picks and you're leaning on a guy like a guy like McLaurin or a guy like, uh, Alan Robinson to be the, the number one receiver on, uh, your team. Do you feel like that, that could give you enough production there? Is there reason to be a little bit, uh, concerned if like that's your loadout?
3: Well, it could, could be enough. I definitely buy the idea that Alan Robinson is good enough on his part. I mean, he's, he's a total beast. He, he does have a little bit of an injury history. I, I don't know how much I generally don't factor that into my process that much unless we got sort of like a developing chronic injury type with a player as far as i know robinson just kind of gets nicked up from time to time and he's had some bad luck in the past so i'm not worried about him on those grounds i am a little bit worried about the quarterback situation i'm a little bit worried about the offensive line but it's also just as much hard to imagine how it could be worse than it's been the past couple of years for robinson to begin with and he's, he's obviously been very productive with the bears so that's that's one of those he, he's one of those players who i think it's totally reasonable to take him where he's going I'm probably not doing it as much as most people, and, and I may well get burned for it, but I find I find less reason for worrying generally with a guy like McLaurin who he, like Robinson, has already shown the ability to produce despite poor quarterback play, but not just that. He's shown the ability to produce with quarterbacks who just do not suit his, his skill set, and especially his downfield abilities went to work with Kyle Allen and Alex Smith throwing passes. So I don't think Fitzpatrick is good, and I don't think you need to believe Fitzpatrick is good to to believe that he'll be a big upgrade for McLaurin, especially in that downfield element. So McLaurin's competent at all wide receiver tasks, including the underneath. He's pretty dangerous underneath and intermediate. But now that he has the down, if I should I should say if he has the downfield component going better than ever this year, then that's that's a new market in itself. But it also should make him even more effective underneath and in the intermediate because he's going to get different kind of cushions, different f- kinds of uh, coverages from defenses that that will have to start accounting for his downfield ability. And so hopefully that can open him up and hopefully Curtis Samuel, who's a, a great pairing target at a reasonable price so far. I, I feel like right now the market is inefficient with uh, Curtis Samuel and, and Logan Thomas, respectively having t- Samuel too low and Thomas too high. I think with, Curtis Samuel there and even Diami Brown
2: looks like we might have a freeze on, on Mario's end. Uh, again, we are talking about, uh, some early wide receiver strategy, uh, specifically with with the Washington football team right now talking about, um, Terry McLaurin and his fit, uh, in that offense, especially now with, with the, with the football team's change at quarterback, um, And in addition to that, uh, we, you know, also looking at, uh, the ADPs of players such as Curtis Samuel or Logan Thomas and how you want to approach them in their respective offense or in that respective offense and within, uh, your drafts as well. Um, it looks like we might be, uh, unfortunately railroaded by, by some technical difficulties on this one, uh, we are trying to, to get Mario back in the feed, but uh, to recap uh, from earlier in, in uh, this week's episode, uh, we took a look at AJ Brown and... and- you know, his recruitment of Julio Jones, what that might look like if Julio uh, does end up as a trade candidate specifically to Tennessee. We also took a look um, at the situation you know, between Aaron Rodgers um, and the Green Bay Packers, of course, uh, take, taking a look, of course, as well at uh, Mario's recent best ball drafts, taking a look at his uh, recent strategies as far as that roster construction and, and the, the tough, uh, sharp field that, that, that uh, you seem to be going up against um, over at if you're playing over at underdog specifically. Um, also getting into some wide receiver strategy, like we mentioned, talking about DJ Moore, talking about uh, Curtis Samuel D- and um, and other players, Terry McLaurin, of course, um, as well. Um, I think we might be getting Mario back here to the stream. Mario, are
3: you back? Uh, yeah, sorry. I guess my internet died. Sorry about that. Uh, well, I don't know how far I got into it. A but Filibustered. The long and short of it is uh, I tend to like McLaurin a little bit more generally than Robinson. And because I'm doing all best ball drafts right now, I'm also drawn toward McLaurin because I like the, the pairing potential of Samuel at his current price. So that's how I'm generally leaning at the moment. Okay. All right. Very good. That
2: sums it up there. Thank you for um, filibustering. Uh, you know, I find a way. Um, so so you know, got a little bit of experience uh, doing that. Um, you know, just with the way that uh, the COVID year went, and having to like do some XM broadcasts that way. Sometimes uh, the connection drops out. So all good there. Um, let's get on over to a guy whose quarterback situation might be changing in a way that doesn't fit his skill set so perfectly. So Michael Thomas is someone who, you know, he couldn't have been a better fit for Drew Brees. I I think that, you know, we can agree there, but with Drew Brees being gone and, and, you know, this kind of moves off of the discussion we had last week about Alvin Kamara and, you know, what direction that the quarterback change in New Orleans uh, could impact on him. But when it comes to Michael Thomas, you know, it felt like he had such a I don't want to say gimmicky role, but such a defined short yardage type of type of role that the type of thing that on that drew Brees could hit reliably and he couldn't really do much else uh, back there at quarterback for the saints late in his career. So with Brees being gone, how are you viewing Michael Thomas as a late third or early fourth type of target?
3: So I'm I'm kind of anxious for the same reasons you said. And, I'm probably lower on Michael Thomas as an overall talent than most people. I've always even when he had his a uh, 100 catches or whatever it was 2 years ago I was like, I don't think he's that good. Uh but he is good obviously. It's not that he's bad. It's like people were saying, "Oh, he's the best receiver in the league." You know, "Oh my god, is he as good as Megatron or whatever it was?" That all the stupid places off-season hype narratives go. And the whole time I was thinking like, this is irritating. He's not that good. He's just you know, he's the latest Breeze receiver. Breeze makes receivers. It happens all the time. We saw him make Willie Sneed had like a thousand yards as a second year or first year player, uh, undrafted out of ball state, playing in Drew Breeze's offense. And some of it probably has to do with Sean Payton, though, too, is the thing. And if, if so, that's encouraging for Thomas going forward, because if last year, granted this was not a huge sample or anything, but when Taysom Hill played, Michael Thomas actually did well. And it was Alvin Kamara who lost all the pass-catching work. So uh, that's not to say Taysom Hill is good news for Michael Thomas. I, I wouldn't be surprised if some smoke and mirrors went into that outcome. But it showed, if, if it did, then it still shows all the same. Sean Payton can just kind of make this guy happen if he wants to. And he probably has to want to. It's all What other choice does he have? Like Traequan Smith, the big new receiver in town? Probably not. So Thomas is probably good generally. Almost definitely the best they have on the team. And if Sean, if Sean Payton can kind of have the system product going, it's, it's still going to be to Thomas's benefit. So it's kind of in that sense, like who cares how good he actually is. So I do think that Jameis Winston would be better for Michael Thomas's interest, Even if, even if Jameis is more of like a downfield chucker, a Michael Thomas might be able to do more downfield than he's done to this point. Like he's, he's been limited, but it's also been limited by design and right. maybe Winston, Dictates a little bit different design, and maybe it works. I don't know. Uh, but I do want Jameis Winston. If I'm a Michael Thomas investor, I haven't had an opportunity where I really want to yet. I'm interested. I don't want to fade him entirely. Um, but if I do invest in Michael Thomas, I'll be hoping for Jameis Winston just because of the pass attempt volume distinction. And you know, Taysom Hill's going to run more times, a lot more times than Jameis Winston. He's going to be generally worse with his passes than Winston, and he's going to run out the clock faster than Winston with all those carries. So. I I think Jameis Winston is clearly preferable for everybody else in that offense. Taysom Hill kind of is a parasite in the sense that like he becomes productive by drawing away usage from Kamara and the pass catchers.
2: Ah, okay. All right. That's a, that's a pretty good summation there. And, and, you know, I I think that most of the fantasy community would, would, Hope and expect that, it, that it's Jameis Winston, but you know, that this one could be a headache, and there's clear clearly an affinity uh down in New Orleans for, for Taysom Hill that's not shared by pretty much anybody online, from, from what I can tell. He'd be a good um,
3: receiver, just move him to receiver, it's fine. Yeah, yeah.
2: see, there we go. Um, one last guy to, that I wanted to talk to you about um, is Keenan Allen because we we saw the amazing target volume once again for him in, you know, relatively short, shorter sample, you know, playing just 14 games uh, last year, still drew 147 targets, which was just two fewer than his 20,000 or 2019 mark where he played two more games. But there was a pretty sharp, pretty steep uh, decline as far as that yards per target figure was concerned. And I was surprised to see that. And I actually was doing a best ball draft on DraftKings on Friday and I, I kind of had to choose between Michael Thomas and, and Keenan Allen and that yards per target mark dropping off that significantly kind of steered me away from him, um, a little bit at, at his current ADP. Um, I, again, it's it's something where I don't think that I, I will be fading Keenan Allen a hundred percent by any means, but what do we make of that of that drop off where he had been reliably in eight yards per target or better guy with, with really high volume, um, to dropping down to 6.7 on such a a high volume? What, you know, what, what's sort of the, the interpretation there?
3: So I totally get the anxiety about that. And normally that's a bit of a red flag for me. And indeed, even in this case, I was kind of like, you I was like, Oh oh my God, 6.7. What the hell? That's, that's not so good. But just, this is maybe like kind of superstitious of me to use this sort of process. It's definitely not scientific, but from what I recall watching the Chargers and those Justin Herbert games, those first games of his, it it felt like Keenan Allen was being effective. It just felt also like so so much of the offense was was built to where it's like Keenan would would kind of have to do the the, the volume stuff that which was both like the dirty work, the highest difficulty, because the defenses were sitting on him and Hunter Henry. If you look at Hunter Henry too, his efficiency really fell off last year with Justin Herbert. And I think part of that is and yet their target volumes in both cases were high. So I guess what I read that as at the time and putting it into the context of Herbert landing these long range shots over and over to Tyron Johnson and Jalen Guyton. And I assume Mike Williams got a few of those too. It the whole offense was, was humming, even though Kean and Allen was struggling by by the standard of Yarper target. But I think that's just because he had the, the highest difficulty role in it. And you necessarily have to consider, you have to be like prepared to give his position, his role in that, that broader construction to, to be allowed to go be- below the team efficiency baseline, because basically Keenan Allen had to suffer with that low efficiency for Tyron and Jalen Guyton and Mike Williams to keep getting open and single coverage downfield. And Herbert was landing those shots. So they, they, you know, it's like maybe, uh, maybe Keenan Allen's numbers was falling off at the time, but they scored a touchdown on those drives and no one really remembered. Like when you watched the games it didn't feel like Keenan Allen was struggling even though his numbers said he was. So mm. with with Herbert scoring all those touchdowns, I feel like it's actually setting the floor pretty high for Keenan Allen. Uh, just not just because of, you know, the target volume is itself, you know, something to bet on. Like that's 140 he had as many targets in 14 games basically as he did in 16 games in 2019. So right. that condition alone is kind of worth Maybe it's not a reason to buy in more, but it's a reason to, to not be afraid of him. At least if you're getting points per receptions, uh, and half point PPR at least. So the way I see it is, because Herbert was scoring those touchdowns, and because the offense itself or the offense overall was was healthy, that means that there's adjustment room because defenses are going to have to adjust more for those deep targets. They're going to have to say, "Look, we know that Keenan's a monster. We're going to try something with him too, but we got to stop putting the safeties up that far. They keep throwing it over our heads." So if because those touchdowns happen, I do think defenses have to approach it differently. And if they don't, then Herbert can, you know, barring some amount of regression or bad luck, he can keep making those long throws too. And if if the Chargers are scoring a certain number of points per game, and if they're generating a certain amount of yardage per game, Keenan will necessarily get in on a lot of it. There's just no way for the first statement to be true unless Keenan Allen is doing a lot too. It's like the, the math just doesn't work. So I think that you can, you can, it's, it's right to be a little concerned, and but the after looking into it a little bit more, I feel like it's, it's, a, it's like a concerning sign, but a kind of thing that'll wash away in a bigger sample. So maybe I'm wrong, but I, I think because Herbert was actually doing well overall, it means defenses are going to have to try to stop them deep a little more than they thought they were. And Keenan has to get a little bit more room to hopefully catch more of those targets for more yards.
2: So... Today is the first time I've heard you mention this. Even you know, just uh, as like almost like a side comment, but it's something that I've also started to see a little bit more when it comes to the discussion around Justin Herbert and the word regression. Um, I feel like I've st- I've started to see that creep in a little bit, and and it it's. I don't know where it's. I mean, I. I guess I know where it's coming from, and it, it's not completely uncommon or unheard of for a quarterback to start out hot and then the next season, you know, have that you know proverbial sophomore slump. But is there am I just like putting two things together here, or is, is there kind of a growing rationale as to why you know Herbert is is kind of now almost being labeled as a as a regression candidate, or or am I off on that?
3: Well, I think. It's a it's a concern you have to address with pretty much any player who's coming off one of the strongest seasons of their careers. Like you have to, as a as a constant policy, be on the lookout for it. So I definitely understand why people look at Herbert and having having 37 touchdowns or whatever it was on on not that many pass attempts. It's it's just objectively true that it's it's very uncommon for quarterbacks to have touchdown percentages like that over broader samples. There, there are some players who can prove an exception, like Lamar. And uh, I'm assuming Mahomes and Rogers and guys like that, but until they reach that superstar sort of level, it's, it's always unlikely that they can keep it up, you know? So it's kind of, I guess to me that the, the way you look at it comes down to how you answer the question of like, is Herbert a legitimate star quarterback? And I, I was not, I was not especially high on him necessarily. I I feel like he, I couldn't really figure him out as a prospect coming in. I, I was like, You know, I I didn't really like his tape that much. The production isn't that great, but he is huge and can really run and he has this strong arm. And I I looked at Josh Allen and thought like, well, it seems to be working for him. And he had a lot of the objectively same indicators coming in. So I I kind of, I refuse to like condemn Herbert as a prospect, but also my neck out to try to, you know, vouch for him so i have no particular vanity reason to 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 say yes he is a star but i i, ha- I feel like it's more likely than the alternative or at least you know he he, he should be very good and nev- never drift below that like even if he's not going to be a top 5 quarterback i don't i don't think he's he's going to have a particularly difficult time because each way the defense tries to adjust to him uh, like i was saying before it's like if they try to if they try to put their safeties back to stop that deep ball and, and if people are saying You know, he's dependent on the deep ball. He wasn't very effective throwing to Keenan Allen and Hunter Henry. So if if Tyron Johnson doesn't average 20 yards a catch and if Jalen Guyton doesn't average 20 yards a catch, his numbers are going to regress and he's going to have fewer of these, you know, long bomb touchdowns. And that all would be true, but even if it is, there still might be a gain around Keenan Allen and uh, I won't. I won't say Jared Cook, but I guess he's going to be running around in that region. So maybe, like, <laughs> uh, or at least it's safe to say Jared Cook does not need to do very well this year to match or exceed the efficiency of Hunter Henry last year. So I feel like the the means by which Justin Herbert w- is most likely to regress, which is defense, is sitting on his this so called you know bailout or, or you know ace in the hole that he had going deep all the time to to offset his inefficiencies elsewhere that will concede better efficiency from the part where he was inefficient before. And I, I think when you, when you have the sum of production that you you do with Herbert and the charges offense, the defense can try to cut off some of it by, by adjusting their strategy. But the sum is so much that you're always leaving yourself vulnerable somewhere else. There's not a way to truly stop the bleeding unless Herbert both regresses as a downfield passer and does not improve with with this increase in underneath space so I'm a little skeptical that that will happen I'm I'm skeptical that he that he won't improve in some way I feel like he can adjust especially when Keenan Allen is so good in that part of the field it's like it's a bad idea to bet on Keenan Allen being that inefficient in general but especially if you know the condition that the safeties will be further away like that's that's just about as bad of a bet as you can think of
2: OK, I mean, yeah, th- it, this is again is something that just kind of has, has popped up and I've seen it attached to Justin Herbert more now. And I just I was having tr- maybe we're just like reaching that part of May where we got to start like getting our getting our takes ready. And, and uh, you know,
3: it's a good general but- process. I just think it's in this particular case, it's like Herbert is the exception you're you're otherwise like suspicious of. It's like, yeah, exception- yeah. exceptions are rare, but here is one.
2: Yeah, like if, if I thought that Justin Herbert stunk, it, um and, and you know, I I will hand up say that like I was surprised by how good he he was last year based on my oh, expectations too. uh cu- coming into uh his rookie season, but that makes me more inclined for, for the way that he performed to just think, okay, he is going to be a good NFL quarterback, as opposed to the you know the converse of that with him, you know, regressing into being the, this like middling mediocre player because he has tools that I think are exceptional. I think he has, uh, you know, what it takes between the ears, in addition to being a big dude with a really strong arm um, and plus athleticism to, to tack onto it. Yeah. So I think he's got everything to be, you know, a, a maybe. Not win at all. I mean, and having Patrick Mahomes in that division is tough. But man, for for fantasy purposes, at the very least, at least for twenty twenty one, um, I don't see things like fa- falling off to where I would be concerned about taking him.
3: He's not expensive. You're not paying the ceiling price for Herbert right now. You're not. Tr- you don't have to draft him as high as Lamar, Dak, or Kyler Murray. Like he seems to pretty consistently go the latest of those four. So I, I actually. You know, I, I go into it kind of agnostic or whatever. I'm not really committed either way. But when I look at the price of Herbert right now, it's pretty easy. It's pretty easy for me to say, oh, yeah, well, in that case, I'm totally comfortable with it.
2: There we have it. All right, Mario, that's going to wrap things up for this week's edition of the RotoWire NFL podcast brought to you by our friends over at WinBet. We will be back next week. Thanks for listening.
1: Try RotoWire today, free for 10 days. Get our premium tools. Rankings, analysis, and breaking news alerts. No credit card required. Go to rotowire.com forward slash try.
0: Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories,
2: schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done.
1: At Granger, we're here for you with
2: professional-grade industrial supplies.